Nothing would have stopped us. Nothing did stop us, did it? For over four decades, they've only ever moved forward. There's nothing to go back to. There was no plan B. Through tragedy after tragedy and a complete reinvention. I think I brought calmness. Because <laughs> it was like, it wants to come and see the band that used to be Joy Division. Nobody. They've never really stopped to take a breath. Until now. You were happy not being a normal group. This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. March 1983, New Order released this song. A record which changed everything. It was just an idea waiting to happen, really. We got there first. Created by pushing the technology to its limits. It was a bit of a science project, really, as well as songwriting, and that's why it sounded so good. It drew on a huge range of disparate influences. This was really gay dance music, and we thought, how can these Mancunian heterosexuals know about this? And set the clubs alight. And if we're honest, still does. It probably became a hit because of DJs, club DJs playing it. It just caught fire. And we were thinking, how can anybody dance to this? <laughs> Which was like an anti-dance record, really. Blue Monday, the song that never grows old. We forget that what we love as humans, what we react to in our souls is actually imperfection. And I think it's perfect because it's imperfect. Just being a teenager on the dance floor, high. Just being in a dark, sweaty club in Chicago, dancing my ass off to a new sounding dance record. But let's lift the needle for a moment. We need to go back before Blue Monday became the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. Where did it come from? That sound, that beat. For Gillian Gilbert, 1981 not long after she joined the band. We used to go out to a lot of clubs in New York and we sort of just picked up on the music and how wonderful it sounded. And we liked them sort of records that were happening in America. So when we came back, we thought, well, why can't we do a track like that? And I think that's the germ of Blue Monday. We wanted to hear our song in a sort of a disco clubby environment. So we decided to go in that direction. <laughs> New Order were enthralled by the power that a hypnotic, repetitive, euphoric groove could have on a dance floor. But there was another motivation for creating a tune that would last 7 minutes and 29 seconds. The band's hatred of encores. Peter Hook. The idea was to get a song that we could play on the sequences so people would stop fucking mithering us to do an encore, which seems really weird and throwaway now that it's become as big and as legendary as it has. I didn't know what it was, but we knew how we wanted it to sound and we knew that we had this gear to, to do it and it just sort of worked at it. But New York in the early 1980s didn't have a lot in common with Manchester at the time. Factory aside, there wasn't an emerging subculture of underground clubs. But there was the local discotheque, a venue never to be dismissed, Bernard Sumner. I remember going to Legends in Manchester on sort of a funk night or something, and they had a fantastic sound system in there with a lot of 
sub bass, serious sub bass. So I started hearing frequencies that I'd never heard before. And they were playing stuff like Sharon Red and those Kiss Master mixes, volume one and two. And I could hear all these sub and frequencies that I'd never heard before. So when we recorded Blue Monday, I decided that we've just got to recreate some of that sub bass on the, on the bass drum because it was done using a DMX drum machine, probably the second digital drum machine after a Lindrum. And there wasn't a great deal of bottom end on the bass drum, so I thought, how can we generate it? And we generated it using a pulse from the bass synth and, and created a subsonic pulse that went under the bass drum. We recorded it at Britannia Royal Studios in Islington, which was a studio that belonged to Pink Floyd, and it was actually a very good studio. And they had really good acoustics, and they had rooms off to the left, rooms off to the right, where you could pipe stuff through. And Mike Johnson, our engineer, had the idea of making some of the sounds harder by pumping them through down to the room where they kept the reverb plates. So we did a lot of work on it, a lot of production work to make it sound excellent. In a digital age that we have now, it would actually seem almost barbaric. Britannia Row was quite an old studio, to be honest. The studio was very well maintained and it had a lot of outboard equipment, but it was all from the 70s, you know, early 70s, if that. So it wasn't the modernist of studios. Mike Johnson was wonderful at, you know, running tape loops right round the studio on 10 mic stands and shit like that. He was up for anything, Mike, especially the pumping of sounds to get great ambience, which we used in the tiled room at Britannia Row, which was like an old disused toilet, but a wonderful slapback that really gave it an edge. I think without him, we definitely would not have created the record that we did. Other artists at the time were recording a state-of-the-art digital equipment, but few chose or had access to classic old-school recording studio techniques. Creating Blue Monday, the band found themselves achieving something new, harnessing the best aspects of both of those worlds. But for Stephen Morris, working with machines was as much a mathematical endeavour as it was an artistic one. You have to be structured because you were telling me machines to play something you were conducting. You had to know a little bit about music. You had to learn a little bit about music and the way that music got constructed. You couldn't just rely on this bit. It feels right to change here, you know, and you'd normally just nod and everybody knew it was the right place. But my machines aren't like that. These new machines were now at the heart of creating the new order sound. But in Bernard Sumner's mind, they were almost the same thing. I saw Blue Monday more of a machine and the different rhythms within it are different gear cogs. So you've got some eights hi-hats that are going then you've got triplets that are going and then you've got the beat. That's the engine. And it's like a load of gears. That's the way I see it. A load of gears all churning perfectly in sync with each other. And when I was writing it, that's what I thought of. And the bass line's going bumba, 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 bumba. So they're all like pulses that fit in with each other. That's how I see it. Less of a song, more of a beat generator. 
so to turn this beat generator into what fans might recognise as a song, Peter Hook had an idea. During some downtime in the studio, Peter caught a film on the telly. The classic spaghetti western for a few dollars more. And what captivated him most was Ennio Morricone's soundtrack to the film, particularly the distinctive bass line. It gave it a melodic content that once you'd put the vocal on it, it became a song. Now, we weren't expecting that. with how good the results were, the band began to push technological boundaries once more. This time, when it came to mixing Blue Monday. Mike used this thing called, it might be made by a telephone called Transdynamic, which was a um, three-band compressor that would put on the whole mix. So we could tweak the whole mix, you know. You probably do it all and plug in very easily now, but in those days, it was pretty revolutionary to use things like that. So we really went into it, spent a lot of time, sweat over it, and it worked. Nowadays, it would take you about five minutes on a laptop to knock up Blue Monday. Yeah, it's hard to explain how difficult it was to put all the bits together. Yeah, because yeah. you don't think of the technical issues when you're doing it, though, do you? No, it was just, I wonder, how are you getting yeah. to do this? It might be a simple matter to knock out a Blue Monday today, in theory at least, but for New Order in 1982, it involved renting out expensive studios and the pressure of finishing it before the next tour. We ran out of time in the studio, so we had the track ready to go. We wanted to play it in Australia, so me and Stephen had to stay up all night in the studio and write every little note down to put it all in our sequencer because it was all done on tape. So we just counted all the bars and fitted it all on the drum machine and the sequencers at the time. It was a great achievement to finish it and I remember that we didn't even have time to celebrate finishing because literally we drove back up the motorway, packed and went to Australia. Next day after we'd finished it. Blue Monday recorded, along with all the other tracks for Power, Corruption and Lies, a discussion was had about what to do with this strange new creation. Gillian Gilbert again. I don't think it fitted on the album, because when you do an album, it's sort of a collection of songs that you write at the time, because you're recording them, producing them, you do sort of get an atmosphere. So I think Blue Monday was one of them songs which didn't really fit, because it was more experimental and it was a totally mad idea to start with. But I remember when we was writing it, Rob, our manager, Rob Gretton, said, this is going to be a hit. And we were like, I don't think so. <laughs> New Order manager Rob Gretton loved the end product so much, he would tear off all his clothes and dance in the studio. He didn't know what he wanted in true A&R man style, but he did when he heard it. With Rob Gretton gunning for his new favourite song, it was decided back at Factory HQ that Blue Monday would go out as a single two months before the release of Power, Corruption and Lies. 
Factory Records, Tony Wilson. I'm not great at recognising singles. I mean, Rob Gretton, the moment they finished recording Blue Monday, he knew this was the greatest record in history. Me, I had no idea at all. It just sounds quite good to me. In the days of physical releases, the artwork for a single or 12-inch could be as important as the artwork for an album. And for the Blue Monday sleeve, once again, Peter Saville found inspiration from an unlikely yet perfect source, a data storage device. I went to visit them at their rehearsal studio outside Manchester to discuss Power Corruption Lies, in fact, to show them the postcard of the flowers. And whilst I was there, two things happened. They played Blue Monday to me, which was just amazing. And I liked it so much that they gave me a cassette of Blue Monday. But before I left, I saw this fascinating little object sitting on the side and I picked it up and I said, what's this? And Steve and Morris said, it's a floppy disk. I went, ah, oh, so that's a floppy disk. I'd heard of a floppy disk, but you know, my life had never given me an encounter with one. It was a fascinating object. And I said, can I have it? Stephen said, no, no, I want. Stephen gave me a blank floppy disk from a packet and I left and I drove back to London. I drove back to London listening to Blue Monday with this floppy disk on the passenger seat next to me. And by the time I got to the M1, the track and the floppy disk had become one in the same. And I decided that the cover for this track had to be the floppy disk. Peter and his team created a metal die-cut sleeve for the single. This was a perfect replica of a floppy disk blown up to accommodate a 12-inch single. And running down the right-hand side of the sleeve was Peter's now signature strip of multicolour cord. In the studio, all of them kicking off with New Order, playing live, singing live with Blue Monday. On the 7th of March, 1983, Factory released Fact 73, with Blue Monday on one side and an instrumental version, The Beach, on the other. To promote the record, New Order were booked on the UK's most popular music show at the time, Top of the Pops, on the BBC. Beamed into the homes of millions of viewers, this was the mainstream. But there was one stipulation from the band. Blue Monday must be played live. They resisted valiantly, so we said, well, we're not playing it then. And I remember when we did play it live, we all forced ourselves to stay up all night so we'd look rough for Top of the Pops because we thought that would be funny. How does it feel when you treat me like you do? And you laid your hands upon me and told me who you are. New Order might have been feeling rough from the night before, but the performance of their new creation, so reliant on machines rather than instruments, was also causing the directors of this live TV show headaches of their own. And the cameras were all set up to roll and the producers and directors upstairs and all the audience was in position because they had a live audience and lots of dancing. And the camera was on me and my fingers and the keyboards and it was like... Right, we started the drum machine. It was obviously I wasn't doing anything, and it was like none of the group were doing anything really. <laughs> and the cameraman and his little microphone said, They don't move. I think we've got a problem. <laughs> oh! We 
played it awfully and it went down 10 places and we were delighted. You know, it was like the antithesis of every other group on top of We were laughing at those groups. Lou Mundy was a feat of engineering in the studio, but playing it live was a challenge in itself. We started off with huge sections of sequences and then we didn't have the technology at the time to sequence them all together. So we used Mike Johnson to edit all the tape together in sections. And it was like, oh, let's have everything changing at the same time, because that's sort of weird. People don't do that. And you could only do that with your sequences at the time. We used to record a bank of music on a sequencer. And then while that was going along, we had another sequencer where we used to have to change the dials, ready for that one to finish and that one to take over. That's why it was a bit mad on stage, because he was just twiddling, waiting for you know these sections to come in and out, so it sounded like one continuous stream of a sequencer. Despite the shaky performance on top of the pops, Blue Monday was unstoppable. It scored New Order top ten hit in the UK and across Europe. And the more airplay it received, the more popular it became. Soon, fans and music journalists alike were looking for the origins of this new sound. Hi, my name is Neil Tennant, and in 1983, I was working as a music journalist at Smash Hits magazine. But in my spare time, I was also writing songs with Chris Lowe. And as the Pet Shop Boys, we would shortly make our first record. Well, I was sitting in the Smash Hits office one day when the magnificent 12-inch of Blue Monday came in. I put it on the office record player and the octave bass line starts. Well, Chris and I had this little studio we used to go to in Camden and we'd written something so similar. I always remember it was called Keeping My Fingers Crossed. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And I thought, they've just done it. They've done it. Because this was really gay dance music. And I thought, how can these Mancunian heterosexuals know about this? They've beaten us to it. It was quite a big moment. But of course, it's a brilliant record. Years later, when we were working with Bernard Sumner on Electronic, of course, we discovered that we all had very similar record collections and had been taking inspiration from them. What Neil Tennant had perhaps forgotten was that these heterosexual Mancunians had recently opened a club in Manchester called the Hacienda. I was in the Hacienda playing on a Saturday night. Its first DJ, Hugh and Clark, had recently fallen in love with an Italian disco record by a group called Klein and MBO. But on a Wednesday night, we had a soul club over on the other side of town, a place called Legends Nightclub. The DJs at the time was Mike Shaft and Colin Curtis. And one of the tracks that they used to play in there was the Klein and MBO, Dirty Talk. And this is one of those pseudo-house tracks. We played it, it emptied the dance floor. We kept on playing it, and over the course of time, a couple of months, people got into it, people started dancing to it. It became a really, really big track. And so I thought I'd play it in the Hacienda. I tried it, over a couple of weeks it worked. It got bigger and bigger, and it became like the number one tune in the Hacienda. I got loads of requests for it. Eventually, at some point, I remember Hooky coming into the DJ box and asking if they could borrow my copy of Klein and MBO. I lent it to them. 
and they had it for a couple of weeks. And then when they returned it, they gave me a white label copy of Blue Monday. So I played Clan and MBO and then played Blue Monday after it. The reaction was instantaneous. It was one of the first tracks that got played in the Hacienda that kind of like unified everybody in the club, you know? It was obvious that it was going to become a big hit. The power of repetitive electronic beats was not something discovered by disco producers. The source can be traced back a little further. Some thought a certain German electronic band might have been an influence on Blue Monday too. I was at this house in Hurstfield Road, just in Macclesfield, down the phone goes, hello, hi, somebody from Kraftwerk. And it wasn't Ralph, it wasn't him. Yes, yes, the band would like to know how you achieved the bass drum sound on Blue Monday. And they wanted to know, it was really exciting. Understandably, the title of the track hasn't escaped scrutiny. The words Blue Monday don't appear anywhere in the lyrics. So where did they come from? Stephen Morris was reading a book at the time, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions, a.k.a. Goodbye to Blue Monday. And Peter Hook has always loved a 1953 song that shares the title. That's Domino, who had a song called Blue Monday. Although Steve, I know it's got a completely different story about that, something to do with Kurt Vonnegut. That's not my memory of it. Wherever the name came from, the release of Blue Monday was a pivotal moment, not just for the band, but for music itself. It was originally released as a 12-inch single. We mentioned it became the biggest-selling 12-inch single of all time. But if you're under 30, you would be forgiven for thinking, what's a 12-inch single? And what's its significance to this story? Mike Ikasarikas, a.k.a. Stereo Mike, is a musicologist at the London College of Music. A 12-inch single, it was effectively a vinyl format that allowed you to do a longer piece, around 7 minutes, 7.30. It was something that was used very much in the dance-slash-club world, so it was a format that DJs would use to take an existing track and prolong it. This would all be done by cutting analog tape, you know, repeating sections, sometimes even manipulating sections a little bit, and that would give you a version of the track that was longer and very functionally useful for the dance floor, because it would mean that DJs could have a longer intro to match the tempo to the previous records and gradually mix that in and, you know, keep the dance floor audience dancing for longer. The advent of the 12-inch record helped DJs to create a continuous beat throughout the night. And arguably, Blue Monday is the link between the dance halls of 60s Jamaica and the super clubs of Ibiza today. The acetates and the dubs that were used in reggae music, which became dub, was very much a day-to-day experiment of changing the multi-tracks of reggae songs into a new format, into a new version, effectively creating a new style of music that they would test every night in the dance hall, dance floor, and check what works with the audience and then go back to the studio and change it again. So those pioneering practices come from Jamaica. 
And this was something that the Jamaican immigrants who were populating places like New York were starting to do both in hip-hop, like in the hands of Cool Herc, but also in the hands of uh, disco DJs who were starting to extend those instrumentals and eventually start putting drum machines and synthesizers under those disco sections that had been copied and repeated to make them sounding better for the dance floor but also to prolong them and then to create change. Heavy, hard to transport vinyl records might not be the preferred format for most DJs performing today but nearly all agree that the 12 inch is the real deal. But perhaps surprisingly for Bernard Sumner the gramophone record is not all it's cracked up to be. I know people love vinyl, but believe you me, it isn't actually better. You've got to fight against it, particularly if you want a lot of subsonic bass. You've got to print it on 12-inch, keep the amount of time that it plays for down as short as possible if you want the bass, because the bass creates wider grooves and the record can't handle them. With the single proving to be such a big hit for the band, and after all the years of financial struggle... Now was the time for the rock and roll lifestyle of private jets and country mansions. Well, not quite. With a hacienda hemorrhaging cash, Blue Monday didn't prove to be the cash cow New Order had hoped for, initially at least. But in the nearly 40 years since its release, what's undisputed is how much the track remains a firm favourite in clubs across the world. It's a guaranteed dance floor filler, I think. Bernard Sumner again. I've witnessed that myself. I was in a club in Berlin once, not so many years ago, and they were playing a lot of techno and stuff, and people were dancing. And then they put Blue Monday on, and everyone got up. Literally everyone. In fact, I nearly broke my leg because of it. I did. It was so crowded, the dance floor, that I stumbled over a little table and nearly broke my leg. So I've witnessed that. I sort of hang around like a vampire with all these young DJs and every bloody DJ, no matter how young he is or how old he is, from Carl Cox to bloody Skrillex or whatever, you know, the first thing they say to you is Blue Monday, man, that made me, that's inspired me, like, oh, God, it's a really weird thing to live with, but what a compliment it is. Honey Dijon is a DJ as well as a producer and musician. She can remember the track going down a storm in Chicago in the early days of house music. I grew up in a really crazy time. It was the beginning of house music culture. It's a very musical town. There was a lot of industrial clubs, a lot of video bars and new wave clubs. So I think my first introduction to Blue Monday was via the video at a bar called Berlin, which was a queer bar. As a lot of people know, Chicago is very segregated, and so house music culture was predominantly black and queer people that created music and a culture for themselves. But there was a lot of, like, any movement, sort of like what was happening in New York when you had hip-hop colliding with New Wave. So when Blondie was doing Rapture, and then she had rap, and then Jean-Michel Basquiat was in the video. That's pretty much how Chicago was. And so we had clubs called, like, Neo and Berlin and, you know, some of these industrial clubs. And so there was all this cross-pollination. So my first introduction to New Order were in house music. Since the track was first played in those clubs in Chicago in the 1980s, there have been countless remixes. In 1988, Factory released the single again. A remix of the original by none other than legendary producer Quincy Jones, who was hoping to sign the band at the time. 
One of the greatest compliments we were ever paid was when we asked Quincy Jones if he'd do a remix of Blue Monday. And he was adamant that he couldn't do it, couldn't better it. And of course, we laughed it off at the time, you know, in the folly of youth. Then you sit there and think, wow, what a compliment. You know, and when he did do a remix, because we forced him to do it, it didn't sound that different. And, you know, he said to us one of the reasons he signed us, because he felt that we were great producers. But why exactly do producers love the track so much? What is it specifically about Blue Monday that leaves icons like Quincy Jones slack-jawed? Just being a teenager on the dance floor, high. Just being in a dark, sweaty club in Chicago, dancing my ass off to a new-sounding dance record. For producer Giles Martin, it's the song's simplicity that makes it such a gem. It is an amazing record. I tell you what makes great producers and great records, and I wouldn't include myself in this, are people that can be economical. If you think about Blue Monday, it has very little going on in it. It's just brilliantly done. It's the same as, you know, listen to Billy Irish record now, it was really well produced, or listen to Dr. Dre and Eminem, they're brilliant because there's nothing, it's very simplistic. And Blue Monday's like that. Blue Monday just has a driving rhythm brilliantly programmed in the days where no one could program. Think about that. I mean, like none of us had an idea how to do it and they did it and came out with something that hasn't been bettered. There's an era of clocking, they call it clocking with machines, where things are now too much in time. And I wonder whether, I don't know, I've never looked at it, but I wonder whether Blue Monday is actually perfectly in time as a rhythm track. You know, if that was done now, it would be really precise. And I think that we forget that what we love as humans, what we react to in our souls is actually imperfection. And I think it's perfect because it's imperfect. But with the vast array of apps at our disposal to create digital music, surely it would be a doddle to make a Blue Monday in just a few hours on the latest smartphone, as Stephen suggested earlier. Or would it? Stereo Mike again. I would say that a lot of what we do today is we fight the sterile nature of perfection that we have been able to achieve. Everything has become quite clean and sterile and a lot of us are going back to vintage techniques to bring a little bit of flavor into the music making process and into the sound making process. And I think tracks like that that's really captured the pulse of the moment contain all of those accidents inside them. So I think Blue Monday and its magic is very much a product of its time. There's a lot of ghosts in the machine. There's a lot of incidents, accidents, happy accidents, as we call them in the studio, which the visionary musicians that New Order are were happy to grab, to capture and to incorporate. It's something I actually often struggle to teach my students and I take them out of the computer onto older equipment and after you know a few sessions, they are all quite inspired about the difficulty and the inspiration that difficulty brings. DJ and producer, Crystal Clear. I heard Blue Monday because I think everybody hears Blue Monday as they're growing up through some facet of the world, you know what I mean? My friends were quite heavily into Joy Division. I was more into metal music growing up, but it was joining the dots of just reading the back of CDs, reading magazines from NME and all this kind of stuff to learning that Joy Division went to become New Order. And then my fascination grew with learning about the Manchester sound predominantly and stuff that was coming out of the Hacienda and 
when I was 16, 17, that's I guess what pushed me towards learning about early Chicago house. And I loved listening to Boogie Records because Boogie Records had like different elements occurring every like 15 seconds and the sounds were fascinating. I think with New Order specifically, they had that at the helm because they have acoustic elements and then, you know, Gillian will be playing some crazy synth line on top of like what to me sounded like maybe a Simmons or a Lindrum beat or an 808. And as I grew to become a music producer, my fascination grew deeper and deeper. And I think that's a huge reason also why I like music of that era because it was that cross-pollination between studios becoming a lot more digitally refined, but the guys that were writing the music were coming from a band perspective. So it was this interesting clash of heads where it was extremely experimental. I think I play a New Order song every set. I don't play Blue Monday anymore because I, I, I played it to a point of no return and I just felt like I was overdoing. But New Order just made timeless music because they managed to make crossover dance music that just appeals to everyone but still has its core integrity and that punk element that Joy Division had. Fans love it, DJs love it, musicians love it, producers love it. But what about Ian Curtis? What would he have made of Blue Monday? Gillian Gilbert and Stephen Morris. No, we need him. You debated it. <laughs> Do you think so? I bet he would. I bet he wouldn't have liked it. He's got a craftwork stringy type thing. Oh, they like that bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a bit for everyone, isn't there? Yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> well, they maybe didn't like some of it. Yeah. No, well, seriously, don't we? I mean, we did like. Giorgio Moroder stuff. I can remember when we were sat in that mm. cafe in Notting Hill and uh, some of the Giorgio Moroder record came on. And they said it wouldn't be good to do something like this. So he probably would have liked it, really. Oh, Ian said that? Yeah. Oh, oh you weren't there, oh, of course. Of course you, you weren't there. <laughs> if Ian could have had a hand in making Blue Monday, would he have done anything different? Peter Hook. I think Ian would have put a fantastic vocal on it and I think maybe it probably would have been a little bit darker but, in my opinion, probably better for it. Blue Monday went on to sell over a million copies. It's been remixed and re-released by the band twice. It's been sampled, it's been covered, it's been featured in countless films and TV shows. But despite how instantly recognisable it is, the track still manages to sound new. And for Peter Hook, you can hear not just the influence of Blue Monday, but everything New Order has achieved at this point as not one, but two bands. Most music these days is in the New Order vein. If a band doesn't sound like Joy Division, then they sound like New Order. And, you know, even if you look at a record in the way that Rihanna does it or, you know, all these 30 seconds from Mars and all these American bands do it, it's, all, it's a combination of rock and dance instruments. And, yeah, we pioneered it. I'm very proud of that. But the New Order story doesn't end here. If anything, it's just getting started. Blue Monday may have been a high point, but it's by no means the only time New Order created a milestone in music. I used to think that the day would never come. I see the lightning 
around the Hacienda? Well, you might know that things got complicated. What's more, Ian's death and the pain they endured to get to this point wasn't to be the only loss they had to overcome. Well, nothing would have stopped us. So Ian's death didn't stop us getting all the equipment stolen, didn't stop us. Rob's death didn't stop us, Tony's death didn't stop us. Um, nothing stops us because there was no day job, you see. There was nothing to go back to. There was no plan B, no other option. So I think we would have carried on until we either starved or died of dehydration. That was Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. Well, part of it. As we say, the story doesn't end here. But for now, I'm Maxine Peake, and this has been a Cup and Nuzzle production for Warner Music and New Order. The series producer was Craig Templeton-Smith. Additional production by Joe Foley, Frank Lockyer-Palmer, Seb Rabus, and Richard King. Thanks to Peter Savile, Becca Bolton and Andy Robinson from Prime Management for New Order, James Masters, Stuart Wheelie and Tom Gallagher at Warner Music, and of course, Bernard, Gillian, Peter and Stephen. Archive courtesy of James Nice, Channel 4, BBC, ITV Granada and Mary Harron. Excerpt of Bernard Sumner's BBC Six Music First Time Interview, courtesy of the BBC. And remember kids, dreams never end.